Again, I hope you will keep your Bibles open with me today. It's one of the uh, most important things you could do, actually, here, is to have an open Bible with you, even if, you, if this is your first time reading it. Treat our church service as, a, as kind of a how-to of engaging the Bible, as of teaching you how to read the Bible, hopefully, on your own. And we're, again, so glad um, that we can respond to God's Word today, and we're just going to get right to work. I hope you're ready. Um, so we're, again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 27, um, and I want to extend one more um, um, ask from you. If you are a, a newcomer here, please do fill this out. This is the best way to connect with us, best way for us to find out more about your life. Give this to anyone who has a hello tag, or you can put it in the, these plates at the back of the room after service, and if you return it back to us, we'd love to give you a, just a small gift from our church just to thank you for joining us this morning. Now, normally, here at Bayless, we work through books of the Bible or passages of the Bible um, one verse at a time. And uh, we do that intentionally for a variety of different reasons. We just wrapped up a series last week on the book of Psalms. Um, and I can't wait to engage the Psalms next summer, but we're going to wait to do so um, until then. And then we're about to begin a series again, getting back into the gospel according to Mark. But we felt it was important uh, to take a two-week break to talk about an enormously important topic for us, um, the nature of the church. What is the church? In fact, there's one specific question that I want to address that I've been asked many times or I've just seen many different assumptions, even from those who have been a part of a local church for a long time. And this is the question, what does it mean to belong to a church? What does it mean to belong to a church? In fact, if I was to ask you, 
how would you answer that question? What does it mean to belong to a church? I've been a pastor um, only uh, for uh, about two years here at Bayless at least, Um, but still I would hope, um, which is not a long time, but I would hope by this point I've gotten to know, um, gotten to see and meet with um, all of our members um, as as a church. Um, And yet every so often I'll be at an event or at a restaurant and a situation seems to happen to me where um, I'll be, uh, again, talking about the work that I do, introducing myself, you know, I'm Evan, I'm actually a pastor over at Bayless Baptist Church, and then they'll get a confused look on their face and say, Bayless Baptist, you said? Yeah, yeah, Bayless Baptist, that's right. Oh, I'm a member over there, actually. Clearly, we have different ideas of what it looks like to be a member of a local church, but let me ask you, what does it mean to be a member of a local church? Is it just a matter of saying, hey, I, I think I like these people. Let's hang out more often. Is being a member uh, mostly just a matter of attending a particular place over and over again, so long as they scratch where I'm itching? Or maybe giving your money there, like you might give membership dues to Costco? Maybe it means first. What does it mean? Mem- many members, many members. So in 1 Corinthians, this book that we're looking at, and you may have read it before, you may not, but it, this church, if you, the, if you just even begin in the very first few verses, you read for long, you're going to find out this church is a fractured church. This church is a whole heap of, of mess. This, this church is not a church that has its act together. They were involved in, many of them in the church were involved in pagan ritual worship rituals uh, ev- um, every week, and many of these worship rituals involved uh, sleeping with a temple prostitute. In fact, we find out in this church that there was a certain indecent and very public relationship between one man and his mother-in-law, but perhaps the greatest issue that the church at Corinth uh, grappled with was disunity. They were a torn-apart people, and I don't mean uh, the kind of disunity that, like, okay, so George didn't invite Paul to the cookout, and so they're not speaking to each other anymore. I mean, like, real deep disunity. They fought over which Christian leaders among them were the most legit. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And then the super spiritual, well, I follow Jesus. They were drawing lines over who they thought was the most impressive and persuasive speaker. They fought over, uh, they actually fought in the courts, bringing lawsuits, one Christian against another. And they fought not only on on these lines, they fought at the dinner table over they, when they would gather together, the, uh, the rich will have, would have eaten all the food that was there, and they would be drunk on the communion wine before even the poor had a chance to show up. And finally, they fought over who was the most important among them, who was the most necessary to the church, arguing that those who had a certain social status or perhaps had more flashy spiritual gifts were worth more, were more important to that local church than others were. And again, if you were to go back to the first century, and I've asked, I mean, I've heard many people say this, almost this kind of have this romantic view of what it was like when the church first began, almost like, what, wouldn't it be great if we could go back there when they finally, when, where they had their act together, where they, where they got it? Okay, just reading the book of 1 Corinthians will cure you of that attitude real fast. Like many churches today, the, the church at Corinth was divided. Rich against poor, Jew against Gentile, men against women, citizen against slave. They had built barricades of race, gender, social status, and spiritual power. Even homes and marriages were torn apart. Now, praise God, we don't have any of these issues lingering today, right? We know churches today can be just as divided, can't they? 
Seriously, all Christians, and I mean this, are in a sense recovering hypocrites. Every Christian is a recovering hypocrite. There are pieces of their lives that they wish matched their faith better. There, there are things that they confess that their lives don't always walk in step with. And actually the mark of a tr- Christian is that they call that out and they long for more. We're all recovering hypocrites. And Paul knew that if the Corinthians were going to continue to claim loyalty to Jesus, to follow him in obedience, they were going to have to recover from this particular type of hypocrisy, uh, the hypocrisy of disunity. These divisions would need to die. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he takes one of these particular divisions head on, and and it motivates one of the most powerful pictures we have in the entire Bible of what the church is like. This division was based on the claim that certain spiritual gifts that showed up in the church made a person more valuable, more important to the church, maybe even closer to God himself. So how does Paul take on this kind of elitism, this kind of just ugly divisiveness? He doesn't just tell them, I mean, come on, stop it, you morons. He instead reminds them who they are. Read with me verse 12 again. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul compares the Corinthians to be a human body. Now, I'll just tell you, I'm no expert in human physiology. My brother and sister are. Um, my uh, brother is an athletic trainer at Children's Hospital, and my sister is a physician's assistant in orthopedic trauma in Washington, D.C. They're both way smarter than I'll ever be. But they, even I can tell you, the little that I do know about the body is that the body is complex. Just think for a second how many of the body's processes need to be functioning right now for you simply to be alive. I mean, can you tell me how many times in the last five minutes that you've blinked your eyes? Or how many times your heart has beaten? How many breaths you've taken? Can you tell me right now what kinds of infections your body is right now fighting off? Hopefully none of them are COVID. Can you tell me at what, at what stage the bagel that you had for breakfast this morning is in the digestion process? Can you tell me, again, how many nerve endings had to be triggered for you to simply scratch your nose? The body is a complex thing, and it turns out the life of the body is dependent upon it being complex and about that complexity working together in unity, right? I mean, uh, you know, we've got lots of weight loss programs out there, don't we? Say you went to the doctor and you said, hey, doc, I'd like to lose some weight. And she gets real excited and says, okay, I've been, I'm so glad to hear that. In fact, I've got a new weight loss plan that I've been waiting to try out on someone. You know, you don't have to actually change what you eat. You don't have to exercise more. You don't even have to take any weird supplements. All you have to do is simply leave with me the organs you don't want anymore. The organs you're not using anymore. What would you, what would you say to that doctor? I'm pretty sure I'm using all of my organs. Thank you very much. There is no such thing as an expendable organ. It's not, it's hard not to see, it's not too hard actually to see the parallels between the human body and the church. It's why this picture is so helpful even for children. All of the various parts working together in unity. Our very life as a church depends upon it. What could be a better picture of what the church is than as Christ's body, the means by which Jesus still acts in the world? 
What could be a better picture of what it means to be saved by God and and then to be made useful to him and to others, given work to do, and then that work to be done together than to be a body? In fact, it's not, it's only together, actually, that the body can be active in the task that it's been left. And what is the task this body is to be active in? To make disciples of Jesus Christ. It only works when the diversity of its members are working in unity together. As they depend upon one another, God has made this body to work like a human body, joined in dependence upon him and in dependence upon one another. The problem is, when it comes to the church, sometimes we view ourselves as expendable organs. In a sense, we have far too low a view of our role in this body. Far too low of our role in this body. Paul gives actually two signs to where we can see this, and they are insecurity and jealousy. He gives this really remarkable image of body parts talking to one another. You know, some people I have found that keep the the church at arm's length do so because they're not really sure what they have to contribute Maybe they're too old or too young. Maybe it's because they have a certain kind of background or baggage. Maybe because they lack education or experience. Many people aren't really sure what there is for someone like them to do in the church. Or they're afraid of what would happen if they just bungled it up. It's easier to remain inactive than to risk disappointing someone. Or others seeing, I have no idea what I'm doing. Sometimes this is because they have, the, they have been rejected or dismissed in the past or because the spotlight just seems to find the really gifted people, right? It seems to hone in on them. We're just used to being unnoticed in the church. I mean, if only we could encourage or counsel like he does. I never seem to know what to say. Or she seems to be a born leader. I couldn't lead people out of a wet paper bag. Everyone seems to connect the way, the way he teaches. I, could, I just could never do something like that. How is it that he always seems to know what people need, but not, not only that, to be compassionate toward everyone he meets? I mean, people just get on my nerves. Have you heard how she shares the gospel? I, I'm way too tongue-tied, and I'm pretty sure I would just stick my foot in my mouth if I tried. We spend our lives comparing ourselves to others, convinced that we could only possibly have value if I had their gifts, adding more proof to the pile of why we could not really be that necessary to the church, especially in this stage of life. You know, insecurity moans, no one needs me, and while jealousy groans, why didn't I get their gifts? Either way, we have a far too low of a view of our role in the church. Why do I say it's too low? Because the same God, this passage says, that has arranged the physical body, has arranged the local church, and there are no expendable organs. But if this God, after all, is the one who arranged your heart, your brain, your lungs, and digestive system to work in tandem, can't we trust him to arrange the church? Do we really think we could do a better job than him of knowing who to include and what role they would take? When it comes down to it, the reason we remain inactive in the lives of others 
is because at some level, we don't trust God. More importantly, when we remain inactive, do you know whatever the reason, we we hurt others more than we realize. Inactivity turns out to to be selfish. Look at verse 4, if we would back up to some verses we have not read yet. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What this means, friends, and this is so powerful if you think about it, is that God has not only designed for his presence and power to show up in a local church, which is enough of a surprise for many of us. We feel like we need to move past the local church. We're not sure why it's important anymore. But nonetheless, it says not only that his presence and power shows up in a local church, but it actually, not just generally, but shows up in you specifically. Each of us has unique circles, specific contexts, particular people, which God has placed us near to impact, and God-given abilities to do so. These abilities are as much of a gift of God's grace as the grace that first saved us, and they have been given for one purpose, not that we might puff ourselves up. We're going to get to this more in a second but that we might care for the needs of the body as God cares for them himself. In fact, we find out that God actually is personally caring for you, often through the lives of others. What could be more dignifying than to be useful to God, to build this community together, have an essential role for it to see it grow and thrive in size and in depth? You may not always see the impact of your gifts, certainly not immediately, and they, they may not get the spotlight that some other gifts are prone to get. But friends, if God is who he says he is, you are uniquely situated and capable of doing things that I am not. As verse 19 says it, if all were a single member, where would the body be? It uses this really humorous image of if you just had this giant eyeball walking around or ear, be grotesque and strange? What would a body be if everything was just one member? We would all be in trouble, in other words, if we were all Larry's or Sue's or Lois's and certainly if we were all Evans. Christian, God has made the church to be diverse and dependent. Do you trust him to arrange it? Our mission to make disciples who make sense of the gospel requires diversity in dependence. It requires you. You matter more to the church than you know, more more than you know. There are no expendable organs. Now let's look at the second point, one body. And can I ask a favor for those who are back in the tech booth? We can probably turn that AC back on. We've been having some trouble with the AC. It's been, it says it's 100 degrees in here, which some of you feel like it is, but nonetheless, thank you guys. One body. Okay, so growing up, um, there were a few moments that were as terrifying for me as gym class. I know that might surprise you. I know, you know, especially when it came to like picking teams. Some of you are laughing. Come on. I mean, this, uh, so if in gym class when they came to picking teams, oh man, I just dreaded this. Now, some of you I know were first picks, all right? And if I can just be honest, there was like this just kind of like 
like stature, this kind, of, this kind of strut that first picks would have. It's like, yeah, that's right. Look at me, y'all. First pick, first pick over here. And then there's others of us that were just last picks. The one that everybody just groans and says, oh, no, not him. We're going to lose for sure now. Anybody else, like, relate to that? Here's just me. Okay, so the, uh, what this means, again, here's why this is important. The thing is, in the church, there are always some people we would rather not have on the team. Thanks for the laugh. That's honest. Thanks. Yeah, we're not sure what they have to contribute, and honestly, they kind of irritate us. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. The reason Paul has to say this is because some in the Corinthian church were treating others as if they didn't matter, as if they were interruptions. If what we looked at before is what it looks like to have too low a view of yourself, this is what it looks like to have too high a view of your role. And there are two signs as well of this error arrogance and dismissal. Arrogance says something like, don't you see how essential I am around here? One of the worst things I can see is when someone who is very gifted all of a sudden realize that they are and it starts to go to their head. Sometimes it can be hidden in all sorts of kind of spiritual language as well, but they begin to see themselves not just as important, but as necessary for this whole thing taken off trusting no one else to do what they can do. And I fear in our celebrity culture, we pressure pastors like me to do this all the time. Who, uh, these pastors, again, um, this kind of mentality they begin to get is, uh, and I would say, again, I'd be lying to say if this doesn't also threaten me, that out of some good desires, they begin to collect power, they begin to protect their public image, they begin to look a certain way, put themselves more into a spotlight than to avoid it, all for the cause of making the gospel known. You know, it's not just pastors, though. I've seen all kinds of religious people get really ugly when their role or a certain ministry of theirs gets threatened. They begin to demand it, making ultimatums. Unless I serve in this way, I'm not going to serve at all. Doesn't that sound like how kids talk to one another on the playground? Hmm, fine, I'm not going to play with you after all. Sometimes it can be cloaked in all sorts of spiritual language, can't it? God has called me to this. I need to be free to use my gift, to spread my spiritual wings, don't I? Are you really going to stand in God's way and not let me serve there? When it comes down to it, it's as if they have bound up their identity their sense of significance in their gifts, in the role that they play. It's one of the reasons I don't actually love spiritual gifts tests, and some of us, we love them. We've taken 17 of them. We've gotten 17 different results after them. You know, because I find that these become just another personality test, or more concerningly, a way to validate how unique we are. It encourages us to link our gifts with our identity. And when this happens, the church and the people then become a means to an end. We begin to implicitly or explicitly sideline those who stand in the way or dismiss their role as somehow being uh, less valuable than mine. I have to tell you, one of the ways that I see this happen frequently is in what Timothy Keller 
um, an author and pastor say, calls a gift projection. Here's one side of gift projection, is that it makes others feel guilty, he says, when they aren't as passionate or as good as what you do as you are. Have you ever seen this before? Maybe we've done this. Make others feel guilty when they aren't as good as you are at what you do. Timothy Keller goes on, it's all too easy, in fact, to try to make the whole church over into your image, making it strictly an evangelistic church or a justice church or a cultural center or an intense discipleship community. What this does is elevate certain gifts above others, particularly the gifts we feel like we have and others, if they're serious about Jesus, should too. Now, this doesn't mean we have a cop-out when it comes to these gifts. In fact, as we see these gifts represented amongst the body, they represent a responsibility the body does have. Uh, uh, You think about it, whether you might be particularly gifted, uniquely gifted and fruitful in evangelism, guess what? Every Christian is called as a witness to share the gospel. Whether or not you are particularly gifted in mercy or not, every Christian must serve with compassion and kindness, don't they? But still, because... God has composed this body. We need to value all of its parts. And notice how this reverses what we're used to, giving honor and care to those who lack it. You know, Paul's actually borrowing an image from the the first century. This was used by Greek and Roman scholars to actually say, keep the people in higher social statuses high. See the head and give them the acknowledgement as the head. Follow them. If you're a lesser If you're a lesser member, then recognize your place and keep the people in power by giving them your respect. Do you notice how Paul flips this entirely upside down? Who does he say the care and attention should go to? The weakest, the most hidden. That God wants us, again, to treat these members as he does by giving value to all of its parts. After all, how many of your body parts have you seen with your eyes How many of your body parts have you not seen with your eyes, rather, that if they were to start to fail, so would your life? I love how Martin Luther puts it, referring to this passage. The sun does not say that it is dark. The tree does not say, I bear no apples, pears, or grapes. That is not humility. But if you have gifts, you should say, these are gifts from God. I do not confer them upon myself. One should not be puffed up on their account. If someone else does not have the gifts I have, then he has others. If I exalt my gifts and despise in others, that is pride. The son does not vaunt himself, Luther goes on, though more fair than the earth and the trees. But he says, although tree you do not shine, I will not despise you, for you are green, and I will help you to be green. When we dismiss somebody's usefulness or need in the body, it is not supremely that person that we are dismissing, but the God who saved them and arranged them to do things that you cannot do. When we find our meaning in our role or the gifts that we have, I have to tell you, it's only a matter of time before you become bitter or self-protective, but more importantly, it entirely misses the point. These gifts are not about us at all. They are first and foremost about the glory of God, about putting the spotlight on him and not on ourselves. And when we exercise these gifts, we are bound by God's word in some way. Just because you have a gift for discernment about truth-telling, you can't be a jerk in pointing out the truth. 
Just because I may have a gift for teaching doesn't mean that I can teach whatever and however and whenever I want. But these gifts are also for the good of others. I'm called to put the needs of others ahead of my own. And sometimes that means putting the needs of the community above the individual. Even roles we may have served in in the past and found a great deal of satisfaction in, we may be forced to set aside that God might work in different ways. And when the time comes, may we all be like John the Baptist who said when his ministry was declining, well, he, referring to Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. May we not be like Elijah who when his ministry was declining said, I, God, even I am all that's left, blinded by his own necessity, unable to see how God might be working beyond him. But let's put these together, many members, one body. The thing is, all of us, we tend toward either too high a view of our, of our role or too low a view of our role. And we might think the solution is something like having a healthy self-esteem, somewhere between arrogance and despair. Only, I have to tell you, healthy self-esteem, whatever that may be, isn't enough to produce what verse 26 says. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Just listen to how Jonathan Lehman, again, author and pastor, puts it, commenting on this. God commands us to rejoice with the brother who gets a big job promotion and all the money and prestige that comes with it. Can we? He commands the 30-year-old single woman who longs for marriage to rejoice with the 22-year-old when she marries. Can she? Can the poor man mourn with the rich man when he loses his job? Saying yes to these questions rather than saying yes to selfish ambition and vain conceit requires something more than sentiment. It requires a heart to be altered by the gospel and the spirit, fulfilling Paul's command to value others better than yourselves with the same love means knowing the love of him who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and then loving like him. The Bible assumes that what we need is not merely a matter of balanced self-esteem. This kind of interrelatedness, this kind of interdependence, mourning when others mourn and celebrating when others celebrate, free of resentment and arrogance, is more a matter of self-forgetfulness. It's a kind of freedom that comes when we don't have to think about self at all. The only thing that can produce this kind of wonderful self-forgetfulness is, in fact, the gospel. After all, Jesus is the one who came to not to be served, but to serve. And he did so supremely by giving his life as a ransom for many. In fact, this supreme act of service for us, the, the, most, the most brilliant and loving and sacrificial act of service that we could ask for, not only uh, granted forgiveness to sinners, not only made us a part of a body, but it made us servants now as part of our identity to do what he does knowing how much he has served and given up on our behalf. Servants of God and of one another. Let me ask those who have too low a view of their role. If death, even death, did not stand in the way of Jesus Christ, then is my inability or my insecurity too much for him? Would the one who has brought my life from the dead now squander how he is using it? 
Let me ask though, those who are, have too high a view of our role, and sometimes we bounce back and forth, don't we? Is your name, is your reputation higher than his? Are you the head of this body? Were you made useful to God because you offered him a good resume because he liked your job application? Aren't we all the last picks? Aren't we those who are the last to be expected to be on his team and nonetheless he's brought us in? You see the gospel and only the gospel can produce that kind of humility, this kind of self-forgetfulness. It doesn't have to validate its identity and sense of significance anymore because it has it in him. This is what we need to live and act as members of his body. Let me give you some descriptives of what a gospel-free person lives like. They aren't trapped in insecurity. Instead, they fully expect that God has work to do with them. The gospel-free person does not waste their time in jealousy. Instead, they praise God for the gifts of others and eagerly embrace the part that they have to play. The gospel-free person isn't puffed up in arrogance. Instead, they know their identity is found in God and his glory is what needs the spotlight. And the gospel-free person does not dismiss others. Instead, they treat the anonymous and the weak with special significance, believing they are as critical to the health of the body as I am. The only power able to make one body of many members is the gospel. Let me give you some final thoughts, though, on what this looks like and means for Bayless. Practically speaking, how does this inform what we do? Let's talk about membership at Bayless. We call covenant membership. You know, when it comes to belonging at Bayless, here's what's so important is we're not taking this model from the surrounding world. It's not like Costco or belonging to the Elks Club, right? This is, this is something entirely different. We're trying to, to obey the picture that this passage is picturing as in conjunction with others. In fact, this is in one, of the, one of the reasons that we speak of belonging in the language of membership. At Bayless, membership gives you the opportunity to commit to Jesus and to others in this local church to pursue the kind of church that we see in this passage. <clears throat> in mem- membership, you give permission to other Christians and their leaders to treat you as a Christian, to help you pursue Jesus as you help them. And in membership, you and I take on the wonderful, dignifying role of being fellow servants. No matter what role somebody finds themselves in, you know what their first role is? A servant. Fellow servants of Jesus and of one another, essential to this body and its mission, serving in ways that bring worship to God and invite more to join in that worship. This means... Practically speaking, there is really no such thing as inactive membership in a church. Even those of us whose energy and health were not what they once were, even those of us who are watching this now online or will listen to this later who are shut up in our homes, you are called and invited to play an essential role. We do not retire from membership. We do not retire from being servants. You may need to get creative, but so long as you have a mind to pray— a voice to encourage or hands to serve, God's Spirit not only can, but will use you if you give it in obedience to Him. There is also no such thing as a disconnected member. I realize that for many of us, making a commitment to a local church is the last thing we want to do. We, we've carried, we carry too much church hurt to imagine doing that. 
we're nervous about perhaps missing out on the better option. What if we find better preaching on TV or down the road? You're going to find it. I'm just going to tell you. Um, We may even like being anonymous. But when we remain disconnected, we are not only robbing others, we're robbing ourselves of the joy God has designed us to experience in making us to belong to him. God in his wisdom has made us to belong to one another. As Jonathan Lehman goes on, you need a body of Christ to be the body of Christ. You need a family of God to be the family of God. In covenant membership, we give Christians the opportunity to do what God has intended Christians to do, to commit, not simply to a vision statement or an ideal or a particular leader, but to commit to Christ and the people that he has brought in that local church. If you are interested and you're not yet a member and committing to membership, let me encourage you to do two things. First, uh, we put a, uh, we, I don't think we put the card out this week because we have a card that summarizes the covenant commitments that we're asking. Nine commitments that we ask every member, practically speaking, actively speaking, this is what we want members to join in. What are we asking members? What kind of commitments we want them to make? You can find these on the walls um, outside, the three-tiered walls. You'll find one in the basket. Again, we'll have these for you next week. But again, those nine commitments. The second thing is I want you to take that card and I want you to indicate on there that you're interested in membership. Check that box and turn it in. And I would love to then um, ask a few questions. I'll follow up with you this week and then connect you with our next Membership Matters class, which is a six-week class. And we talk about what we believe, what does it look like to be a member here, for you to ask the questions that are on your mind. I want to encourage you again to do those two things if you're not yet a member. But if you are a member, let me ask you, What does membership look like in practice for you right now? Even in a limited season, how are you serving in the lives of others? Are you waiting for someone to ask you? I'm asking you. Begin serving in the lives of others. Instead of mourning all that you cannot do, let me ask you, what can you do? Is God surprised by the times we're in? What opportunities has God given you to speak and to act in the lives of those around you right now, even if you feel intimidated to do so? What spiritual gifts in you serving in an uncomfortable way might God uncover in you that you might never have known that you had? Many members joined in one body. What might God do with a body eagerly joined in such a way? Are you ready with me to find out? Let's pray. God, thank you for this body you've joined together and have done so by your grace. In fact, there's no higher price you could have paid, no, lengths you, no, no greater lengths you could have gone to make them belong to not only you, but to one another. We don't want to resent your wisdom in making us a part of the family that we're in. For those of us who have yet to commit to this body in a substantial way through covenant membership, would we have the courage to do so? Those who can't yet, would we understand and bring to you the reasons why we don't? To work through our lack of forgiveness, to work through some of our church hurt, to discern. Maybe it isn't this church that we're called to belong to. Maybe it's another local church. Lord, for those who are members, would we act and live eagerly, joyfully, as imperfect beggars pointing others to the bread? And would we see you show off not only in us generally, but in each other specifically? And would we find our role in being chief encouragers, pointing out this week a way that you are at work in those around us? We pray all these things in light of King Jesus, who is wise and good and is the head of this body. We pray for his sake. Amen.